You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series on evidences. Now looking at questions on Genesis. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. In this podcast, I'm reading some material from my book, Your Bible Questions Answered, Harvest House 2011. This comes from chapter 4, which is on Genesis. In all their 27 questions and answers, I've selected 12 that I hope will be of interest to you. And I'll be reading it directly from the book with a minimum of tweaking. Let's begin. Genesis 1.1. When was the earth created? Does the Bible tell us how old the universe is? Genesis doesn't include a date for the creation. Some Sunday school curricula say 4004 BC, which was the guess of the Irish Archbishop James Usher, 1581 to 1656, professor of theological controversies at Trinity College in Dublin. By combining the ages of Genesis 5, he arrived at the dates of 4004 B.C. for the creation and 2349 B.C. for the flood. Some 90% of American evangelicals believe in a young earth, just a few thousand years old. Yet, this approach is not without problems. We simply cannot add genealogies together, Genesis 4, 5, 10, 11, and arrive at solid dates because they often skip generations and are based on criteria no longer considered trustworthy. Even if this methodology were sound, dating Genesis 1-1 remains impossible because it precedes the first creation day. As a case in point, we have written records from Egypt and Mesopotamia from before 3000 B.C., and the Great Pyramids of Egypt are some 4,500 years old. So Usher's flood is way too late. Tree ring dating brings us to millennia before the pyramids and geological and astronomical study to eons, many magnitudes more ancient. Unless the Lord has faked scientific data, the cosmos appears unspeakably older than Usher's estimate. Since, one, Christians hold a number of views about the age of the world, two, the Bible is not a science book, and three, none of these opinions affects the core message of the scriptures, the best answer is this, the world was created in the beginning. Genesis 1.1 is the Big Bang Theory compatible with the Bible. According to a 2010 research of the National Science Foundation, only 33% of Americans agree that the universe began with an explosion. Yet nearly all Christian theologians, philosophers, and scientists accept the Big Bang. Persons as distinguished as J.P. Moreland, William Lane Craig, Paul Copen, Norman Geisler, Chuck Colson, and John Polkinghorne. Yet for some Bible believers, the Big Bang is anathema. But why? There is much in the Big Bang Theory that agrees with the Bible. 
formulated in the first half of the 20th century, it suggests that space and time had a beginning. Though the theory is complex, its simplicity is astounding. Everything we see all began in a single moment in the distant past. Science and theology converge. Before the theory was proposed, empirical confirmation came only in 1965, most scientists supposed an infinite universe and opposed the Big Bang. Yet the evidence shows the universe had a beginning. So if nothing existed before the beginning, what caused it? A beginning requires a beginner, God. Whether or not the Big Bang Theory ever needs to be revised or updated, there is nothing in it that nullifies faith in God. Genesis 1-3-2-3 Was the world made in seven literal days? Through Christian history, perhaps the majority of Christian writers have answered no to this question. Such illustrious thinkers from the earliest centuries of the church as Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Cyprian and Augustine reckoned the days were not 24-hour periods. In fact, there's more than one way to read the text, and there are at least five major approaches to Genesis 1. It should be emphasized that each interpretation is taught by persons who believe in the Bible and hold the Genesis account to be true. This is one of many areas in which genuine Bible believers do not always see eye to eye. The real question is, which view makes best sense of the facts and the text? 1. The literal theory. God created everything in six literal 24-hour days. As I mentioned, many Christian teachers from A.D. 100 to 500 did not subscribe to this view. In roughly 2,000 pages of commentary on the six creation days, the favored view from the early church is that each day represented a longer period of time, such as a thousand years. This seems to be the simplest view, except that if the account is intended as a literal chronicle of what happened, it is at odds with the scientific evidence. Two, the gap theory. A universal cataclysm took place in a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. The original creation was destroyed and God started over. The dinosaurs were exterminated, their fossils preserved in the ground. Isaiah 45-18 is cited for support. The Lord did not create the earth to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. If the earth was not originally empty, it must have become empty through some global cataclysm. And the six days are God's recreation of the earth. This view is not widely held. Three, the revelatory day theory. How did the Genesis writer know what happened at creation? This theory suggests God revealed what happened in stages on seven successive days. And this attempt to reconcile Genesis with the apparent antiquity of the earth has few adherents today. Four, the day-age theory. Popular among Bible believers, this proposes that each day is a geologic age. Genesis 1 and modern geology have some points of agreement. The ancient earth became increasingly ordered. The conditions for life preceded the existence of life. Simpler forms precede more complex forms. Man appears as the highest product of the creative process.
Like the two previous views, this allows for the ancient earth evidenced by science, although there are several discrepancies. Is there another explanation? Five, the literary theory. The days are not literal, but are a literary device for communicating the truth about the creation. The original readers of Genesis, sharing the author's culture, understood exactly what he meant. The scheme is logical, not chronological. It also has the marks of poetry. Other poetic accounts of creation are found in Job 38 to 41, Psalms 8, 19, 33, 104, 148, and Proverbs 8. The literary theory recognizes providence. God was preparing the world for habitation. He did this with care, not haste. This theory recognizes a definite structure to the creation account, a schema. Consider how God's providence and forethought are portrayed in each of the first three days as each prepares for the last three. The world is not an accident, but the result of the wise and caring oversight of the Lord God. Genesis 1 does not purport to be a scientific record of what happened. It is a carefully instructed, constructed account, however, based on the use of symbolic numbers, especially 3, 7, and 10. 3. God said occurs 10 times, 3 times in reference to man and 7 times for all other creatures. There are three blessings. The verb to create is used on three occasions and three times on the third occasion. Seven. And it was so occurs seven times, as does, and God saw that it was good. God either names or blesses things seven times. These are all independent of the structure of the seven days. Genesis 1.1 has seven Hebrew words. 1.2 has 14 words. And 2.1-3, the seventh paragraph, has 35 words, all multiples of seven. The word earth occurs 21 times, and Elohim, God, 35 times. 10. The names of God occur 70, seven times 10 times in Genesis 1 to 4, and prove the unity of the passage. Yahweh, God's personal name, see Exodus 6 3, occurs 10 times. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, occurs 20 times, and Elohim, God, occurs 40 times. Scholars of the text have discovered a masterful inner structure. Many words and phrases recur a theologically elegant number of times. The chance that this is coincidence is extraordinarily small. Such observations, as well as the style and poetic aspect of Genesis 1, favor the literary view. Christians who hold to this view, or at least embrace an ancient earth, rejecting literal creation days, include such incisive thinkers as philosopher Francis Schaeffer, apologist Hugh Ross and Norman Geisler, church historian Mark Knoll, and writer C.S. Lewis. In fact, at the second summit of the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy in October 1978, the age of the universe was discussed at some length, the conclusion of all the Old Testament scholars and theologians present, such as R.C. Sproul, Norman Geisler, and J.I. Packer, was that inerrancy requires belief in creation, but not in 24-hour creation days. Genesis 1, 11, and 24 are evolution 
and the Bible compatible. As we've seen, the Bible often uses metaphors and word pictures to reveal truth. See the introduction, page 5. Are we to read the Bible literally or figuratively? Page 24. And how should we read the poetry of the Bible? Page 109. When Genesis says that God formed man from dust, are we reading a technical biological description of the origins of human physiology or are the scriptures something else through image and story? In the Genesis account, is the Lord literally a gardener? 3.8. A potter? 2.7. He is the creator. And these images get the, that vital point across clearly, even though they need not be read literally. Here are five important points that will help us to keep the issue of evolution in perspective. One, evolution has nothing whatsoever to do with the existence of God. Evolution is an attempt to account for how life came to be as it is. Whether God used evolution, instantaneous creation, or some other means is irrelevant to the fact of his existence. Evolution concerns the mechanisms of life, not the presence or absence of a creator. Two, evolution neither confirms nor disconfirms the Bible. The scriptures do not commit us to any particular scientific position, so we are free to weigh the evidence and decide for ourselves. Three, evolution is not a matter of salvation. In my first year or two as a Christian, as a young earth creationist, I was convinced quite to the contrary. It was unthinkable that anyone could disagree with me on such an obviously important matter and still remain in the grace of God. But in fact, Christians hold a variety of views on this subject. Even James Orr, whose The Fundamentals gave rise to the epithet fundamentalist a century ago, described himself as a theistic evolutionist. Four, there is no conspiracy. According to the same National Science Foundation study cited above, only 45% of Americans agreed with the statement, human beings developed from earlier species of animals. Despite the collective paranoia of those who imagine a massive conspiracy afoot among scientists to reject the Bible, none exists. The majority of scientists believe in God, and many believe in the Bible. Five, the biological issues are extremely complex. The Bible never purports to be a science text. The conviction with which we hold our opinions about science ought to be based on our scientific expertise in the respective area. One does not become a physicist by reading Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the same way, Genesis 1, 11 to 13 is not the last word on botany. To those who see a scientific account in Genesis 1, we might ask, does Genesis attempt to explain how the Lord intended the land to produce vegetation and animal life? 111, 124. We need to blend humility with courage to embrace truth as we approach matters scientific. Consider Billy Graham's gracious words. I believe that God did create the universe. I believe that God created man. And whether it came by an evolutionary process, and at a certain point he took this person or being and made him a living soul or not, does not change the fact that God did create man. Whichever way God did it makes no difference as to what man is and man's relationship to God. C.S. Lewis also had a gracious and sensible approach to this issue. I am 
not either attacking or defending evolution. I believe that Christianity can still be believed even if evolution is true. Evolution is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. And the majority of Protestant intellectuals also believe God may have worked through natural processes. Francis Collins, director of the Human Genome Project, is probably the most recognizable American scientist of our time. He's also an evangelical Christian. Other believers who affirm that God created the world through evolutionary processes include such eminent scientists as Oxford's Alistair McGrath, Ph.D. in molecular biophysics, Canadian biologist Dennis Lamoureux, who holds three doctorates, and Brown University's Kenneth Miller. Even Michael Behe, author of Darwin's Black Box, and arguably the leading scientist within the intelligent design movement, has acknowledged the validity of common descent in his recent book, The Edge of Evolution. Founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City and New York Times bestselling author, Timothy Keller, correctly notes that creation science was not the traditional response to Darwin. Christians tended to be old earth creationists. He says, I personally take the view that Genesis 1 and 2 relate to each other the way Judges 4 and 5 and Exodus 14 and 15 do. I think Genesis 1 has the earmarks of poetry and is therefore a song about the wonder and meaning of God's creation. There will always be debates about how to interpret some passages, including Genesis 1, but it is false logic to argue that if one part of Scripture can't be taken literally, then none of it can be. All of this suggests that, like the Big Bang, evolution should not be a problem area for faith. When we are asked to choose between God and evolution, we are being confronted with a false choice. Ultimately, interpretations of biology and Genesis are not matters of salvation, and true Christians differ widely in their views on the origins of life. Genesis 1.27 Did Adam have a belly button? Some people teach that God created the earth with an appearance of age, that science is on target in its analysis that the cosmos appears to be billions of years old, but the Bible is right that the earth has been around only a few thousand years. According to the omphalos theory, popularized by Philip Henry Gosse in 1857 and named after the Greek word omphalos, navel, Adam was formed as a fully adult male without a mother, so he had no belly button. He may have looked 25 or 30 years old, but in fact, he was only seconds old. The trees of Eden, by the same token, would have shown tree rings, annual growth rings. God made the earth with a built-in appearance of age. But scientific proof cannot be claimed for both a young earth and an appearance of age, which is precisely what many young earth advocates do. You cannot have it both ways. If the omphalos theory is correct, there should be no shred of evidence for a young earth. This approach makes God a party to deceit because he is misleading us through the data of the physical world. Scripture affirms that God reveals truth through the creation. Psalm 19, 1-4, Romans 1:20. When we gaze at the stars, we understand God's wisdom, power, and artistry, and we are moved to worship. Gazing at Adam's navel is another matter. 
Genesis 2.22. Was Eve made from Adam's rib? If so, does this support male chauvinism? Genesis portrays the Lord as a potter, 2.7, a gardener, 3.8, and a surgeon, 2.21-22. Of course, God could have literally created Eve from a rib or even a stone, Matthew 3.9. But the point of the passage is the organic, spiritual connection between male and female. Adam and Eve are meant to be together. As someone well said, the woman was created not from his head to rule over him, not from his foot to be trodden on by him, but from his side to be his equal. The woman is created to be man's helper, Genesis 2.18. This is no slight. The Lord himself is our helper, Genesis 49.25, Deuteronomy 33.29. In the Bible, women are respected and marriage is honorable, Hebrews 13.4. It is also far from being one-sided. By New Testament times, the emphasis is on the mutual love between man and wife. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Who was Cain afraid of? Genesis 4, 14 to 17. Who was Cain's wife? A pretty good case can be made for a substantial population outside the first family. This case is based on the anthropological evidence and the Bible itself. His wife could have been a sibling. There were sisters, Genesis 5-4. But the text does not naturally read this way. Genesis 5. Did ancient humans really live for hundreds of years? We have no paleontological evidence of human beings living for hundreds of years. But we do have significant evidence that ancient readers would have understood the numbers to be symbolic, representing idealized ages. Carol A. Hill explains. The key to understanding the numbers in Genesis is that in the Mesopotamian worldview, numbers could have both real, numerical, and sacred, numerological or symbolic meaning. The Mesopotamians used a sexagesimal, that is, base 60, system of numbers. And the patriarchal ages in Genesis revolve around the sacred numbers 60 and 7. In addition to Mesopotamian sacred numbers, the preferred numbers 3, 7, 12, and 40 are used in both the Old and New Testaments. To take numbers figuratively, figuratively does not mean that the Bible is not to be taken. Literally, it just means the Bible writer was trying to impart a spiritual or historical truth to the text. One that surpassed the meaning of purely rational numbers. The important question to ask is, are Genesis and the record of the patriarchs from Adam to Abraham to be considered mythological or historical. Ironically, by interpreting the numbers of Genesis literally, Christians have created a mythological world that does not fit with the historical or scientific record. The literal or numerical view is secular, while the symbolic or numerological view is sacred, because that is how the original biblical authors intended for it to be. To faithfully interpret Genesis is to be faithful to what it means as it was written, not to what people living in a later age assume or desire it to be. It is also ironic that the mythological world created by many well-intentioned and serious literal Christians 
based partly on the numbers in Genesis, has caused millions of people to reject the Bible and the truths contained therein. Genesis 6-4, who were the Nephilim? The term means the fallen ones. An unholy union, probably human and angelic, resulted in a serious violation of the cosmic order. Some proposed they were a race of giants, the offspring of angels and women. Others suggest they were the sinful seed of Cain, who later resurfaced as the Canaanites. Note that they were on the earth in the days before the flood and afterward. Genesis 6 to 9. Is there archaeological evidence for a global flood? There is widespread confirmation that floods have occurred all over the world at different times. But there is no evidence for the entire world being flooded simultaneously. In fact, a literal interpretation of Genesis 7.19 would require more than five miles of water on top of the present ocean levels. Mount Everest is currently 29,035 feet high, or 5.5 miles. The Earth's diameter is 7,926 miles. So the volume of additional amount of water created by such a flood would be more than a billion cubic miles. Imagine a cube of water, a thousand miles by a thousand miles by a thousand miles. Three to four times more water than is in all the oceans. 322,300,000 cubic miles. Further, with this amount of water in the clouds, atmospheric pressure would approach a thousand pounds per square inch. One's whole body would be flattened as if by a steamroller. Living through the flood would have been easier than living before it. Once the waters had fallen from the sky, decompression would have caused nitrogen narcosis, the bends. Not only that, but it took 2.5 months for 20 feet of water to subside. Genesis 8, 6, 13, and 14. So it would have taken more than 300 years for the entire 5.5 miles to drain. Also troubling for literalists, Psalm 148.4 says that the waters or floods above the sky are still there. Where are they? And why is atmospheric pressure so low? The required supernatural explanation invalidates the natural biblical one. Flood geologists believe major surface geological features of the planet were formed during the deluge. Yet assuming the flood happened in the last six or 7,000 years, we have a problem. Our present mountains were all in place. Fossils, rather than being mixed stratigraphically, as one would expect in a global deluge, are predictably found in their respective geological strata. Note, too, that the geologic column was worked out by Bible believers before the time of Darwin, as was the antiquity of the earth. Another difficulty with the global flood is that the Bible says the Lord used a strong wind to dry the ground. But would this have been of any avail had the entire surface of the planet been covered with water? When the Red Sea was parted by such a wind, Exodus 14:21, the waters were restrained only temporarily. How much more so if the entire planet had been covered? This too suggests the recollection of a local inundation long before the final version of the flood story. In the ancient Near East, the Epic of Atrahasis, Tablet 3, and the Gilgamesh Epic, Tablet 11, contained popular flood stories. 
The pagan versions are roughly parallel to the biblical account, including a God warning a man, the animals, the birds sent out on reconnaissance, the sacrifice after disembarking from the ark, and quite a few other features. At the same time, there are major points of divergence. In the pagan pagan versions, the flood is an outburst of divine irritation without any reference to sin or judgment. The protagonist's survival is despite the will of heaven, not because of God's gracious initiative. The Mesopotamian accounts, though of historical value, tell us nothing about God. The Israelites adapted the ancient flood story to become a vehicle for telling the truth about God. Davis A. Young, an evangelical geologist from Calvin College, sensibly addresses the matter of the extent of the flood. I do not consider it a violation of the integrity of the biblical text to suppose that the biblical flood account uses a major Mesopotamian event in order to make vital theological points concerning human depravity, faith, and obedience and divine judgment, grace, and mercy. The evangelical church serves no good end by clinging to failed interpretations of the Bible and refusing to explore new directions. Christian scholars have an obligation to lead the way toward a renewed reverence for God's truth wherever it can be found. So we see that the traditional interpretation is not necessarily the correct one. Although the Genesis flood was probably limited in scope, the watery judgment on the human race serves as an apt illustration for the coming day of judgment. Matthew 24, 37, 39, 2 Peter 3, 3 to 7. Misconceptions about the flood. The animals entered two by two. This is only partially true. Clean animals entered seven pairs at a time. Unclean animals, two pairs at a time. Genesis 7, 2. The extra clean animals were used for sacrifice. The flood lasted 40 days. In fact, 150 days to the total length, 724. And Noah was unable to disembark for more than a year because of the flood waters, 711, 8, 13 to 14. 40 days was only the period of intensive rain, 717. The ark alighted on Mount Ararat. The Bible says it came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, 8-4. The specific mountain is not named. Every animal species found its way to the ark. Actually, only domesticated animals are mentioned. Those the family of Noah would need in order to continue animal industry and sacrifice. No fish made the journey. The account was new. The flood story was a rewriting of a current narrative, but with significant theological differences. Unlike the pagan stories, it emphasizes God's holiness, wisdom, grace, love, and justice. Genesis 8-4, where is Noah's ark? Did it survive? Would an ark not have been a valuable commodity? Rather than abandon it, the survivors or others after them would surely have been more liable to use the wood for structures, tools, fuel, and so on. Ark sightings of timbers from the original ship on Mount Ararat, altitude 17,000 feet, are surely exaggerated. Besides, the Bible never says the ark landed on Ararat. Scholars reject these speculative claims, often promoted for pecuniary purposes. Genesis 11, 3-5. Is there archaeological evidence for the Tower of Babel? In all likelihood, this was one of the ziggurats, step pyramids, discovered at Babylon, perhaps the great step pyramid of Etamenanki. 
Ziggurats were topped with temples, like the Tower of Shechem in Judges 9.46. Some 30 ziggurats have been unearthed in the ancient Near East. Enuma Elish, the creation account by the Babylonians, ends with the construction of the Temple of Marduk, a parallel with the Genesis account, Genesis 1-11. Babylonian religion was heavily focused on astrology, and this passage is one of the Genesis writer's assaults on such idolatry. Indeed, the implications of the many allusions to paganism in the pages of Genesis are easily overlooked by the modern Western reader. Those are 12 questions. There are 15 more in the chapter. I hope it's helpful to you that you can use some of this material as you think through the issues and answer questions of people who are genuinely seeking God. May our own interpretations, considering the fact that we are not inspired, be held by us tentatively and with humility. None of the issues that we read about in this podcast are matters of salvation. The issues are complex, and as, and as I've tried to emphasize in the book, various interpretations are held by true believers. And that means we should not only be humble, but really do our research before we embrace any particular view. I hope this has been useful to you, and also hope you'll get your own copy of Your Bible Questions Answered. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's series on evidences. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.